me. Let's turn together. Hey, Doug, I'm going to use the pulpit mic today, if that's okay. Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 10. Jesus told a parable about a farmer who sowed his field or planted his field with good seed. But then at night an enemy came in and sowed bad seed on top of the good seed in the midst of the farmer's field. I have every confidence in the world that Glenn and Devlin and others sowed the good seeds of Baptist hymnal lyrics into those hymns we were singing. But I began to theorize over here that maybe some Methodist enemies came in and sowed the bad seed of Methodist lyrics into our hymns, into our computer system. If any of you have any information regarding that, let us know at the church, please, because I pride myself on knowing the words to the hymns, but I saw some verses up there that I have never seen. It may not have been Methodists. It may have been Mormons or something. I mean, I have never seen any of those words, and Mama made us sing all the verses growing up, all right? Our focus in John chapter 7 is responding to Jesus. Everyone responds to Jesus. It's not just that you should respond to Jesus or that one must respond to Jesus. Everyone does respond to Jesus. It's what Jesus meant when He said you're either with me or against me. When it comes to Jesus, it's either a yes or a no. There's no such thing as maybe or undecided or no decision. No decision is the same thing as no. There's no fence straddling when it comes to responding to Jesus. There are only two ways to respond. First, by receiving Jesus through faith. Or second, if you don't receive Him by faith, you reject Him. The first half of John 7 is completely about this response of rejection. So what does it mean to reject Jesus? What does it look like? There's certainly more to it than merely saying, I reject Jesus. It's broader than that. In the first 24 verses of this chapter, we find that responding to Jesus with rejection takes at least four forms. We covered the first two forms two Sundays ago today. On that Sunday, we saw that rejecting Jesus can take the form of unbelief. And we saw it in that form in His brothers, the brothers of Jesus. 
It includes not believing who Jesus is. Not believing what Jesus came to do. And this unbelief also includes not understanding who Jesus is. Or what He came to do. And then second, on that Sunday a couple of weeks ago, we saw that rejecting Jesus can take the form of hatred. And we saw that in the hatred of the world towards Jesus. A hatred that comes as the result of the testimony of Jesus about the world. About us. Remember, His testimony was that and is that we are evil. We are people of sinful, evil deeds. And this hatred towards Jesus that is the result of His testimony about us includes hating His Word. Not just that portion of His Word, but but all of it. And it also includes not loving Him. Today we're going to cover the next two forms responding to Jesus with rejection can take. So third, this would be our third form rejecting Jesus can take. Third, uh, it comes in the form of opinions. Rejecting Jesus can come in the form of opinions, and we will see this in the opinions of the crowd in verses 10 through 13. So let's look together at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, and I would remind you from the first nine verses that the festival being referenced here is the Feast of Tabernacles or the the Feast of Booths, one of the three most important feasts on the Jewish religious calendar. After his brothers had gone up to the festival... Then He, Jesus, also went up, not openly, but secretly. This verse reiterates something that was a major theme in the first nine verses. The timing of Jesus. Do you remember that Jesus' brothers encouraged Him that if He ever wanted to get a following... He needed to go up immediately to this festival to Jerusalem where all of the people were so that He can get in front of as many people as possible and and, uh, get a crowd following Him again because He had lost the crowd at the end of chapter 6. So this verse, by telling us that He went up secretly, reiterates the timing, the mission of Jesus. It wasn't a mission of public recognition or approval. His timing wasn't the timing of His brothers or the timing of the world. His timing was the timing of God. And whenever you see Jesus refer to His time or His hour, He's always talking about His crucifixion, which was the end game of His mission. It wasn't time for Jesus to die. So he avoided a confrontation with the Jews. Nor was it time for Jesus to be a political or a military Messiah. Which is exactly what the crowds would have wanted from Jesus, or would have wanted from Jesus, if he had gone publicly. The festival of tabernacles was a time where 
the Jewish people's messianic fervor was at its height. So he avoided the crowds by going secretly. He avoided their agenda, the crowd's agenda, his brother's agenda. And it's a reminder to us as the people of God that our agenda is different from the agenda of the world. It's different from the popular majority agenda. We're operating on a different sense of timing and mission. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for Him at the festival and saying, Where is He? The Jews is a designation that we've seen already numerous times in the Gospel of John. And John always uses it in a negative sense. He's not just referring to the physical descendants of Abraham, but when he uses the phrase Jews, he's referring to those who had rejected Christ as the Messiah. That's generally the way he used it. In this context... He's specifically using it to refer to the religious leaders that were in Jerusalem who were looking for Jesus and wondering where He was because they wanted to kill Him. And they had by this time for quite some time. We'll come back to their plot to kill Jesus in a little while. They were looking for Jesus because they thought like the brothers of Jesus thought, that if Jesus were some sort of Messiah, that He would show up at the height of the festival, and not secretly, but publicly. But Jesus doesn't think like the world. Verse 12, there was a lot of discussion about Him among the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. The issue here in verse 12, and for that matter, the issue, is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That was the subject of conversation. That was the subject that was being debated at this time. And I can say without the least bit of hesitation, that there is absolutely no issue that is more important for any of us. The identity of Jesus. Who Jesus is. Certainly John felt that this was the most important issue of all issues because at the end of this gospel, in describing why he wrote it in the first place, a verse that we've looked at already numerous times, he said in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus did a whole, and I'm loosely quoting, a whole bunch of other miracles, but I've written about the ones that I have. I've written about the signs that I have so that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. For John, it was all about Showing people or revealing through the signs of Jesus the identity of Jesus. And he thought this way, and we should think this way. Because if a person ever understands, really understands who Jesus is, they will believe. 
Unbelief is rooted in not understanding who Jesus is. It's why the brothers of Jesus did not believe because they did not yet understand who He was. The crowd in chapter 6 eventually left Jesus because they didn't understand His identity. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter and said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, If they had known, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. You ever thought about it that way? If the people that were involved in the crucifixion, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Romans, had really understood that this was the eternal God in the flesh, do you think they would have had any part in crucifying Him? No, they didn't get it. Well, this issue of the identity of Jesus is still misunderstood and debated. And the crowd here was wrong in their opinions. In that sense, the crowd today is no different than the crowd back then. The crowd is usually wrong. Majority may rule, but when it comes to the things of God, the majority is usually wrong. Just like the crowd here. The crowd at this point was offering two opinions on the identity of Jesus. In one camp were those who said about Jesus, He's a good man. And by that, obviously, they meant that He was a moral man, that He was a religious man, maybe even that He was a religious leader or religious teacher. We're probably referring to Him being a man of good works. All of the miracles that He had done, He was a healer. And look, all of these things about Jesus are true. He is a good man. In the truest sense of the word. And the the things that they thought about Him that would have led them to say this, they were all true. But they were lacking, weren't they? While they were all true, they all fell far short of capturing who Jesus really was. You know, saying He's a good man isn't anywhere close to understanding that He is the divine Savior. That He's the eternal second person in the Trinity. The very Son of God. Well, then you had a second camp represented here whose opinion it was that Jesus was a liar. That He was a deceiver. That He would have been among the many false messiahs or false prophets or false teachers of that day, that He was a revolutionary. Some, in believing that Jesus was a liar, went so far as to suggest that Jesus was a lunatic or that Jesus was crazy. In verse 20, we're going to see later on that they thought He had a demon, meaning that He was crazy. They suggested this numerous times. The opponents of Jesus did. There's no evidence to support the opinion that Jesus was a liar. There wasn't then. And there still remains no evidence to support the conclusion that Jesus is a liar. And it's not for a lack of trying. For 2,000 years, the critics of Jesus 
have been working up a case against Jesus to prove that he's a liar, and still their case is like the house that was built on the sand. No evidence that he was a liar. On the other hand, there is much evidence to the contrary to the suggestion that he's a liar. Lots of opinions about Jesus. So many, in fact, that sometimes the true identity of Jesus gets lost in all of the opinions that people have about him. Daniel Darling works under Russell Moore for our religious and uh, our ethics and religious liberty commission. And he's recently written a book called The Original Jesus. The aim of the book is to get back to who Jesus really was according to the Scripture. And in doing this, he points out the myths that are out there about Jesus. The opinions, all of the opinions that there are about Jesus. So in his book, he has a chapter on the guru Jesus. And another chapter on the red letter Jesus. Where Jesus is just what you read in the words that are read in in some Bibles. One chapter is on the Braveheart Jesus. Another chapter is on the Dr. Field Jesus. Another one's on the Prosperity Jesus. And then there's one on the American Jesus. And then there's another chapter on the hippie Jesus. The post-church Jesus. And then there's a chapter on the left-wing Jesus. If you're wondering where's the chapter on the right-wing Jesus, that was included in the chapter on the American Jesus. And there are all these opinions... These opinions at best, at best, fall far short of capturing who Jesus is. And at worst, these opinions are outright heresy. No different than what the cults believe about Jesus in subtracting from who He really is. Opinions about Jesus are a form of idolatry. Worshipping a Jesus of our own creation, our own imagination. What we need is not another opinion about who Jesus is. What we need is the truth. How about you go to what truth Jesus affirmed about Himself? Do you remember that encounter according to Matthew chapter 16 where people were having opinions about Jesus and Jesus asked His apostles... Who do people say that I am? Oh, well, some of them say you're Elijah. Some of them say you're Jeremiah. Some of them say you're a teacher. Some of them say you're another of the prophets. And Jesus heard all of the opinions that were going around. And then He asked the apostles, Now who do you say that I am? And Peter, who often got it wrong on this occasion, got it very right. And he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gave him a big spiritual pat on the back when He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. All the things He got wrong, flesh and blood revealed that to Him. But here, heaven had revealed to Peter 
The truth. Truth about Jesus that we must believe. It's the way that we must respond to Jesus. Now look at verse 13. Still, nobody was talking publicly about Him because they feared the Jews. You see the crowd's fear of the Jews there? William Barclay said they talked about Jesus, but they were afraid to talk too loud. Did any of you feel a twinge of conviction when you heard that quote like I did when I read it the first time? They talked about Jesus, but they were afraid to talk too loud. Contrast the crowd's fear with Jesus. Fear didn't keep him from the Jews. His timing did. His mission did. Fear should not silence us as the people of Christ today. For that matter, neither should the issue of God's timing silence us. Jesus was constrained by a sense of the timing of the cross. But from our side, it's always our time to speak the gospel of Christ. It's always time to fulfill our mission of doing that. So the crowd responded to Jesus with opinions. Some of them were positive. Some of them were negative. All of them were wrong. They were just opinions. They rejected Jesus with opinions. How about you? Do you have opinions about Jesus? Or do you know the truth about Jesus? The truth that He is Lord and Savior and there is no other. A truth that we find in His Word. And it's not just that truth about Jesus that we find in His Word. It's truth all about Jesus that we find in His Word. And it's all of the truth that we find in His Word, which is the truth. If all you have is opinions, your response to Jesus is to reject Him. Well, that brings us to the fourth form rejecting Jesus can take, at least according to this passage. And it is conspiracy. Rejecting Jesus can take the form of conspiracy. And I'm referring to the conspiracy of the Jews that we've already been introduced to. We'll see it in verses 14 through 24. Look at verse 14. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple complex and began to teach. From verses 1 through 9, we learn that Jesus didn't want public recognition or approval. Jesus just wanted to teach. Jesus just wanted to preach. I love that. I love that that truth that's communicated here in that verse within this context. 
All Jesus wanted to do was teach and preach and proclaim to people the Word of God. In verse 7, He spoke of a part of His mission as being to testify. And I would point out to all of us, myself included, that the two things that I've just mentioned are mutually exclusive. Proclaiming the message of God is mutually exclusive from public recognition and approval. Because the message that God has given us to proclaim will prohibit the world from approving of us. Remember, it kept the world from approving of the message of Jesus because a part of the message is we are sinful. We are people of evil deeds. And it will always make it where the vast majority of the world will never recognize Christ or His people, approve of them or their message. There's a lesson for us here about our mission. Church, our mission is to make disciples not fans. Our mission is to make disciples of Christ, not personal fans. There's another lesson here about how we are to accomplish that mission. With teaching. With preaching. With proclaiming. With sharing. It's what Jesus did. And in the Great Commission... Jesus not only taught us what our mission was, He told us how to do it, did He not? He said, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them whatever I have commanded you. Verse 15, Then the Jews were amazed and they said, How does He know the Scriptures? Since He hasn't been trained. Do you notice there what Jesus was teaching? What was it? The Scripture. The Word of God. There's another lesson for us here about what we are to teach. Our mission is to make disciples. The way we do it is through teaching. And the content of our teaching is to be the very Word of God or Scripture. Go back to chapter 6, verse 63, where Jesus said the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. What people need apart from Christ is spiritual life. And that can only be given through the very Spirit of God. And the only way that the Spirit will minister life upon people is through the Word of God. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. It's why Paul could write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's why I could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And sadly, it is foolishness to a lot of people in the church today. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus taught the Scriptures. And He could do so because He knew the Scriptures. Did you see here that even the Jews acknowledged that He knew the Scriptures? How does He know? Was their question. Knowing the Scripture is a requirement for teaching it, isn't it? I don't just mean teaching it here. We're all to be proclaimers of the Word of God in our own way. And in order to proclaim it and share it, we must know it. And that raises a big problem, doesn't it? Not a problem with the message or with the Scripture, but with a bunch of those who have been commissioned to teach it, not knowing it. When we speak for God, everybody look at me and listen to me. If you ever speak for God, you better know what you're talking about. Otherwise, you'd be better off just being quiet. And don't take that to mean that I'm giving you an out for not talking with people about Jesus. Well, I don't know it. And the pastor said, if I don't know it, I don't have to teach it. And some of you are like, that's the best thing I've ever heard that dude preach. I never wanted to tell anybody about Jesus. No, we have an obligation not only to share it, but to learn it so that we can share it. Another big problem is with those who have been commissioned to teach the Word of God, not trusting it. Not trusting that it alone will make a difference in people's lives. And that whatever else we come up with will only make a temporary difference at best. Here's a, here's a wonderful truth from verse 15. Knowing Scripture doesn't require training or education that the religious authorities or the world recognizes. So some of you are thinking, you know, going back to that, I've got an out. Well, he must be talking about going to biblical college or going to seminary, and that eliminates 99.9% of us. We're not going to, so, so we don't know. You don't have to go to seminary to know the Word of God. Now, that's not a statement against seminary or or religious education institutions. Uh, We have some wonderful ones in our convention, praise God now. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. And they can help. Uh, My daddy used to put it like this. Any axe can cut down a tree, but a sharp axe makes it a whole lot easier. So I'm not knocking religious education. But I'm saying it's not a requirement. You see it here in Jesus. Uh, You see it in Peter and John in the book of Acts. It's not a necessity. But when you don't have the kind of training and religious education that religious authorities recognize or that the world recognizes, what it will lead to is they're questioning our right to teach in the first place or to proclaim it in the first place. And it will also lead, if we don't have a certificate they acknowledge, to their questioning how right what we say is in the first place. 
This is a reminder to us that the religious crowd and the majority, they can get it absolutely wrong when it comes to the teaching of God and what it means. They sure can. They did here. I mean, these people were the experts in the Word of God and the very Word of God had come in the flesh to them and they rejected Him. We should expect this. We should expect that the world will never acknowledge our right to proclaim. That the world will never acknowledge that what we're saying is right. It doesn't matter how educated we are. There are many among our number, I don't mean our number here today necessarily, but among the number of true believers who are extremely educated by any person's definition. I'm talking about, uh, we have leaders within our own convention that have uh, multiple masters and a, a, a PhD and a, and a, 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 a doctorate of theology and, 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 and multiple, I mean, you add it up and it's fetal DDD, they've got so many things behind their name. These are educated people, but when they speak and speak well, do you think the educated people of the world think they're educated? <laughs> doesn't matter how many degrees from religious institutions they have. The world will never respond to what we say in the right way, or at least the majority won't. Look at verse 16, and we're going to finish up here today. I want to show you in verse 16 what is required to know and teach on behalf of God. Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it is from the one who sent me. Training and education that religious authorities and the world recognizes isn't a requirement, but your teaching being from God, that is a requirement. Your subject matter being from Him and you're knowing that, it is a requirement. Jesus obviously had it. I'll take it a step further. This is an interesting thought. Jesus didn't just have teaching from God. He was teaching from God. He, he was one of those, the one, who not only was the teacher but he was the subject matter too. He, he was all of it. He had the teaching. He was the teaching. And we have the teaching from God in a different way. I mean, we don't possess it naturally or intrinsically as Christ did as the second person in the Trinity, the eternal Word of God. But we have teaching from God through Scripture. In His Word, His written Word. And we also have the teaching from God in the sense that we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Who is the Word of God. I'd ask you this morning, is what you know, and I use that term somewhat loosely. I preached this week in revival from 1 Corinthians and one of the passages Paul talks about them knowing and then in the next sentence he says you really don't know at all. Is what you know, is what we know, is what we teach, 
is what we opine about from God. Is it? Or do you just pick it up somewhere else? I mean, do you pick it up from the, the vast depths of your own personal intellect? From your own personal private connection with God where He fills you in on stuff that He doesn't fill anybody else in on? Did you pick it up from the world? Did you pick it up from the latest religious special on the Discovery Channel? Is what you know or what you teach from God, look, much of it isn't. It's just opinions. And it's a form of rejection. For if what we say we know about God and what we share about God isn't from God in His Word, then it's a form of rejecting Christ. It's a form of rejecting His Word. It's ultimately hatred of His Word, which is nothing less than hatred of Jesus. Today, how are you responding to Jesus? You are responding to Him. Most respond with rejection. But if nothing else, hear this today from a passage that's all about these people rejecting Jesus. Don't reject Jesus in any form. Turn from your rejection. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your hatred of Christ or lack of love. Turn from your mere opinions about Christ. Turn from the conspiracy that you might be involved in. This turning from rejecting Christ is repentance. Receive Him. Don't reject Him. Receive Him. The only way we can receive Him is through faith. Through understanding and believing with all we are that He is the Christ. The Son of the living God. And keep receiving Jesus. Those of you who have repented and believed, keep repenting and believing and receiving Him in this way. The thing is, we're all responding to Jesus. Our aim today should be to be a people who are responding to Jesus in the right way. Not just any way, but the right way. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?